We'll be reading from Zephaniah 3, 1 through 13 this morning. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks to them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I have said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more, they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies nor shall they be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue for they shall gaze and lie down and none shall make them afraid let's pray <clears throat> father we thank you for your precious word we thank you that you have placed your power in it, Father. We pray <clears throat> that you would send your spirit this morning to convict us and to sanctify us as we hear your word, Father. We thank you 
for the cross, which has made all this possible. Just thank you so much for the gospel. In your precious son's name, amen. Good morning, everybody. For a second, I was afraid that uh, all my notes were going to be gone. <laughs> but <clears throat> it's okay. Good morning. Uh, it's great to see you all. Such a huge crowd for the summer. I mean, over the summer, like, all the students leave, and it just seems like everybody else is gone, and nothing is going on during the summer. So it's good to see a lot of you guys here this morning. <clears throat> Most of the time, it's pretty slow. Uh, if you guys don't know me, I'm Stephen. I'm elder pastor candidate here at Aletheia. Uh, and I'll be bringing to the word for us this morning. Now, the past couple of weeks, we've been studying through this series uh, that we're calling The Forgotten Books. Um, we began it last summer with the tiny and hard to pronounce book of Habakkuk. And this summer, we're starting through the equally tiny and hard to pronounce book of Zephaniah. These are called uh, a section of the Old Testament called the Minor Prophets. And they're called Minor Prophets not because they're less significant than the Major Prophets, but because they're significantly smaller. I mean, Zephaniah and Habakkuk only have three chapters, uh, and they're short. Isaiah has 66 long chapters, Jeremiah has 52 long chapters, and Ezekiel has over 40 long chapters. Um, so for that reason, <clears throat> these books are a little bit tricky to find because they're so small. Uh, and unless you have a smartphone app. In which case, they're just hard to spell. Um, <clears throat> now, so if you go ahead and turn with me, we're going to look at Zephaniah chapter 3 this morning. Um, Kevin, a couple weeks ago, said uh, best way to find it is to like start at the beginning of the Old Testament, or the beginning of the prophets and go forward. I think it's a lot easier to start at Matthew and go backwards because it's like 10 pages back. It's one of the last books in the Old Testament. Uh, he is, Zephaniah is the, uh, the last of the minor prophets to speak before the destruction of the temple. He's the last of the minor prophets to speak before the exile. Uh, so let me pray for us this morning, and we'll dive in. God, thank you for Zephaniah and the, the Bible, God, your word to us. Thank you for the message that you've sent. God, I pray that uh, I would communicate that message faithfully and that you would teach us this morning uh, what you have taught the people through, through the words of Zephaniah. Father, we love you. We thank you. Amen. So like I said, we're going to open up chapter 3 this morning, Zephaniah. Sam, Sam read it for us. Uh, up to this point in the book, things are starting to get pretty bleak. Uh, Derek and Kevin brought chapter 1 to us a couple weeks ago, and I taught on chapter 2 last week. Um, and the entire book of Zephaniah up to this point is about the day of the Lord. That's the day of God's judgment. He is going to bring judgment on the people of this region. That's what Zephaniah is talking about. As I said, he's the last of the minor prof prophetic books, and he is solely focused on the day of the Lord because it's so close. It's imminent. It's right there. It's going to happen within his lifetime. I mean, even if you start date the book of Zephaniah to the beginning of the reign of King Josiah, 
it's only 30 years before the first exile happens. Exile happened in three stages. So you're talking about well within the lifetime of Zephaniah himself and the hearers of his prophecies. <clears throat> so that's why he's so focused on this message. Now God had been sending prophets to the people of Israel since the time of Moses to remind them of the covenant and what that meant. The covenant that God made with Israel had many blessings and many curses. Moses himself listed the first warnings in, chapter, in Deuteronomy chapter 28 about what would happen if the Israelites did not follow the covenant, did not uh, follow righteousness according to the law and abandoned God. And everything that Moses said would happen, happened in this period of time. <clears throat> Starting in Deuteronomy chapter 28, uh, Moses tells them that they're going to be defeated in battle in verse 25. And then in uh, verses 49 through 59, he tells them that they're going to face starvation and desolation and a siege and hunger and pestilence and disease, intense suffering. And he also says that whoever survives that is going to be carried off into exile. That's in verse 33 to 37. And so all of this should be nothing new to the people who were paying attention. All of these things that the prophets are saying should have been in the front of people's minds because this is the law. This is what they should have been studying. This is what they were told to pass on to their children. But they hadn't been doing that. At this point in Israel's history, the prophets of God had been preaching for over 500 years, urging the people to turn back to God, warning them what would happen if they didn't turn back to God, warning them of the promises God made to them in Deuteronomy 28. And we see this downward cycle throughout Israel's history that kind of looks like some of your retirement accounts. Um, or the stock market from 1928. I got a picture of that, if it comes up. If not, oh, there it is. So that, we can use that to look and see the spiritual history of Israel through the time of the kings. Through the, in the beginning there, you know, that could be the reign of Saul, the first king. He was not bad, not great. He didn't follow God with his whole heart, and neither did the people. And then you've got that spike up there. That would be King David. He was the first king of Israel that was considered God's man. I mean, he's described as a man after God's own heart. And he led the people uh, well, and he led them spiritually. And Solomon, after him, built the temple. But then you have a series of bad kings, of Rehoboam and Jeroboam and all of the other names that I don't have time to go through right now. And, and you can see it looked kind of like that. And the, the people would get worse and then they get better, but not as good as they were. And then they get worse than they were before and they get better and worse and better and worse all the way down. And that little last hump there, that could be the reign of Josiah, this king. And we've been talking a lot about him for the past few weeks because he was the one who was reigning during the time of Zephaniah. He was a godly king. He was a very good king. And he did his best to try to bring the people back to Israel, back 
the people of Israel back to God. Back to the worship of Yahweh. He rebuilt the temple. He cast out all of the idols from the temple. And he tore down all the foreign altars to, to foreign gods. And he encouraged the people to listen to the prophets and to follow after God. But as we see in the writings of Zephaniah and the other prophets from the area, uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and some of the others who were writing at this time, the hearts of the people were still wicked and they were still turned towards their idols. They didn't want anything to do with God. They didn't want his blessings. They didn't want his curses. So let's start in Zephaniah. As Sam read it for us this morning, um, now the first eight verses there are a pronouncement of judgment on the city of Jerusalem. At other times, the city of Jerusalem is called the holy city. It's called Zion. It's called the holy mountain. But, and this is where God's temple was. And yet here at this time, what does Zephaniah call it in verse 1? He's, woe to her, a rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing until the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. So the prophet here starts off by telling the people, why is Jerusalem being judged? Why is God going to pour out his wrath on Jerusalem? And that's because first, they have not listened to the word of God, spoken through his prophets and written down for them in the book of the law. They haven't been listening to it. They haven't been obeying it. They have completely abandoned the law. As I said, the prophets at this point have been preaching for over 500 years, since the time of the first king, David, Saul, and David. And things just kept on getting worse and worse and worse. They haven't listened to God, and they have not repented. Worse than that, they have abandoned Yahweh as their God, and have taken to worshiping foreign idols. So that's uh, first and second. Third, um, her officials within her, instead of governing the people and judging the people according to God's law, the officials and the judges are out only for their own selfish gain. They're perverting justice. So much so that they're likened to these dangerous predators from the region, lions and wolves, who prey on the weak, who target the stragglers who are left behind. And they're prowling around, keeping watch out for anyone who they can exploit. Now this can be rich people who uh, are willing to give them a bribe, or even uh, the poor people who they could exploit and take their property away to sell at a profit. Anyone who they can take advantage of, that's who, these, that's who these officials were. They're like predators. Fourth, the so-called prophets of the city are taking bribes to preach whatever they're told by the highest bidder. They're called fickle and treacherous. Fickle means your loyalties are just everywhere. You're not loyal to anyone. 
and they're treacherous. So even the loyalties that they do have, they're betraying them. And they're doing everything for their own selfish gain. They're telling fortunes and selling their fortunes for money. And they're taking money in exchange for blessings. Instead of warning the people of the impending judgment of God, of the impending wrath that's coming, they are instead only out to satisfy their own desires and to satisfy the itching ears of the people and what they want to hear. Fifth, the priests are profaning the holy. They're getting wealthy off the sacrifices of the people. Rather than encouraging them to be righteous and pursue holiness, they let the people revel in their sin and profit from it. They're also allowing idol worship in the temple. Uh, Immediately after the death of Josiah, um, the first group is taken into exile. And among them is the prophet Ezekiel. And in the book of Ezekiel, before the, the destruction of Jerusalem, he has this vision that God gave him, and it describes what's going on in the temple right after this period where this good king tore all the idols down. It said that they had set up this large idol of Baal in the courtyard in the north of the temple. It said there were idols in the sanctuary, in the very holy of holies of God. And even that the the guy who found the book of the law under Josiah, and the guy who brought it out of the temple and presented it to Josiah so that Josiah could make all of his reforms, that guy's son is one of the people worshiping idols in the temple. It said that there were male and female cult prostitutes who had set up their business in the north gate of the temple. And people were worshiping the sun and the moon at the entrance to the temple. There was no place for God. There's no place left. And in chapter 10 of Ezekiel, he has a vision of God's presence leaving the temple. Ezekiel saw the presence of God depart. And only a remnant of people were still worshiping God in Israel at this time. Almost the entire city had abandoned him. Zephaniah contrasts this depravity in verse 5 with the goodness of God, saying that the Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his, his justice. Each dawn he does not fail but the unjust knows no shame. So he here, he contrasts this complete ungodliness that's going on in Jerusalem with the goodness of God, with the faithfulness of God. And he says that the people who are unjust, they show no shame. They're not even ashamed of their sin anymore. This shameless pagan behavior of the people of Israel Uh, is something that's significant because God is faithful. Um, And because shame is something, when we feel shame over our sin, what do we do? As Christians, when we feel shame over our sin, we repent, we change, we turn. But these people felt nothing. And so... God tells them in verse 6 and 7, 
He reminds them of the prophecy that he has given them uh, in chapter 2. If you remember from chapter 2, what we looked at, God gave this prophecy that the, the, all of the nations, all of the cities surrounding Israel were going to be judged. Assyria, Egypt, the people of Canaan, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Ammonites, they're all going to be judged and destroyed before Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is going to have time to repent, time to turn back to God, time to change. But here's what God says. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste to their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate, without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely they will fear me. You will accept correction, and your dwelling will not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But they were all the more eager to make their deeds corrupt. In this passage, God is holding out his hands to Israel as he's judging the other nations wanting them to come back, wanting them to repent, to turn to him, but he knows they're not going to. When the Babylonians came through and destroyed everyone else along their way, they were supposed to see that and remember the words of the prophets and to turn back to God. Instead, they were more corrupt. Instead, they did not obey the words of the prophets. And they were eager to sin even more, to turn to their idols, to turn to the things that they had been trusting in other than God. Then in verse 8, God speaks to proclaim his judgment on Jerusalem. And he says, therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey... For my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. That's pretty sobering language. Terrifying is what it is. Because God is saying he's going to gather up the nations and he's going to wipe them out. He's going to pour out his anger on them and his wrath. People don't typically talk like that in today's Christian world. We, we haven't talked about the wrath of God in a long time because people don't want to hear about the wrath of God. They don't want to hear that the wrath of God is coming. It's so much easier to accept the grace of God, the mercy of God, than to hear about the wrath of God. We, we don't want to hear about that. Some people only preach the wrath of God. And they don't preach mercy, and they don't preach forgiveness, and they don't preach redemption. And that's equally wrong. We don't serve a one-sided, one-dimensional God that only has one face and only does one thing. How many times have you seen a picture of Jesus uh, holding a little lamb with a halo around his head with a sweet little smile on his face? And he's just this kind, gentle loving, gentle God. Or, or maybe you've seen a picture of him sitting down and teaching little children. He's just so peaceful looking. 
or, or seen you know, pictures and depictions of God sitting up in the clouds. I've seen a lot of them. What I haven't seen a whole lot of is pictures of Jesus holding the whip that he braided together to cleanse the temple in Matthew 21. I have seen a handful of pictures like that. Even some of them I see is like he's pushing over a table and he's like got this smile on his face like, oh, you bad boy, don't do that. You know, but you know, if you really think about it, in Matthew 21, Jesus braided a whip of cords and drove people out of the temple with whips because they were profaning God, because they were making money off of people's sacrifices. You know, I've, I've heard the argument so many times, God is love and people won't listen to an angry God, a wrathful God. I mean, how many of you have heard the quote from Richard Dawkins, who's talking about how God is just this awful, racist, homophobic genocidal maniac that's one-sided we don't serve a one-sided God the problem with God's wrath is that without it his mercy is cheap without God's wrath his mercy is worthless we don't serve this simple God why else did Jesus come even the New Testament talks about the wrath of God. Colossians 3, verse 5 and 6 tells us to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Without his wrath, the people don't need a savior. Our God is the God of all things. The pagans and the, the idol worshipers believed that God is, there are many gods, and there's a God of everything. There is a God of the sun, and there's a God of the moon, and there's a God of the harvest, and there's a God of uh, the drought, and there's a God of the storms. There's a God of death. There's a God of war. There's a God of peace. There's a God of the ocean. There's a God of the mountains. But the Bible tells us that our God is the God of all things. He is the God of the sun and the moon and life and death and fertility and destruction and peace and war. Throw up Deuteronomy 6.4. This is called the Shema. It's, it's the greatest commandment. Jesus said it was the greatest commandment. Moses said this is the greatest commandment. And this is the preface to it. He says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. And then the rest of the Shema says, and You will love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, and your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. This first part shows us that God is one. He is the only God, and he alone is God. There is no other. He is multidimensional, many-sided, and we need Jesus to save us from the wrath that is coming on the world. God is also the God of mercy. 
and the people here hearing Zephaniah's message, at this point, I imagine they were pretty depressed. Because, I mean, if you can imagine putting yourself in their shoes, you've heard all of this death and destruction and pronouncement of judgment on them and their city. And so much so that he says, your only hope is that, that uh, you will be righteous and humble and you're going to be so lowly that when the Babylonians come to destroy everything, they'll ignore you. That's your only hope because judgment is coming and there's no hiding from it. When the Babylonians besieged the city, the city was under famine. And they took everything with them when they left. At this point, Zephaniah's audience, the, me, the, the audience of Zephaniah's message turns. Before, he's been talking to the entire city of Jerusalem. Now it seems he is only talking to the righteous remnant, the people who do follow God, because Nobody else is listening anyway. He starts in verse 9. He says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my despised ones, shall bring forth my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are in left in Israel, they shall do no injustice. They shall speak no lies nor shall they be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. God is going to purify the nation of Israel. After all of this judgment, after all of this condemnation that is raining down on them, God promises he's going to restore them and purify them to create for himself a chosen people from all nations who will be faithful to him. Sound familiar? The message of salvation to the Gentiles is not found only in the New Testament. It's not just Jesus. That's the entire plan. That's God's plan all along. From the beginning of time, his plan has been to redeem a people from all nations. And he did that through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross who died as a sacrifice to atone for the sins of man. Zephaniah 3.9 tells us, um, well, the word for speech in the Hebrew is also the word for lips. That language is very similar to a construction that we found in uh, Isaiah uh, chapter 6, verse 5 through 7. In this passage, the prophet Isaiah is standing before God in a vision in the temple in Jerusalem and is awestruck by, with complete horror by being in the presence of God. So much so that he said, Woe to me, 
I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. But one of the angels flew down to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Now this altar that the angel took the coal from is the altar of God that the priests would burn on it, the whole burnt offerings, the atonement sacrifice. And he takes a tongue from the altar that has been purified and consecrated by God and he touches Isaiah's lips. And he says, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Zephaniah is saying the same thing. God is saying that in the same way, he's going to purify the lips of all the peoples so they can call on the name of the Lord. This glimmer of hope and mercy for the people of Judah uh, is that God will one day atone for their sins and pay for all of the horrible things that's been going on. And he's not only going to atone for their sins, but he's going to atone for the sins of the entire world, all the peoples of earth. They'll no longer be ashamed of their sins because God will have atoned for them. He paid for it. He tells the people they won't have to be ashamed of their sin anymore. Remember I said shame is important because shame shows us what we need to repent of. But they're not going to be ashamed anymore. Not in the same way that they were shameless. But because they have nothing to be ashamed of because God has paid for it. Because God has paid for their sin. Uh, Now, some of us, even after our conversion, still feel the shame of sin in our past lives. But the prophet is saying your shame is no longer needed because your sin has been paid for. You don't have to feel ashamed anymore of your past life. You can let it go because he's paid for it, because the promise of salvation, which was veiled through the message of the prophets in the Old Testament, has been shown openly through Christ. He laid down his own life on that altar to pay for a rebellion against him and to satisfy the wrath of God that's coming. Those who believe on the name of the Lord and call on him for salvation are his chosen people. They are the ones who are spoken of in verse 12 and 13. Are the ones who are humble and seek after God and seek to do righteousness. By following God as the good shepherd, and submitting to him. He will take away your sin and take away the wrath. God sent Jesus Christ to us to be this atoning sacrifice, to be the one who would pay for our sin, who would pay for the shame who would pay for the rebellion against God. 
He sent him here to die on the cross. To be the atoning sacrifice for us. To pay for our sins. And those of us who call on him for salvation will know that peace. In a moment, we're going to take communion here as we do every week at Aletheia. Um, and uh, one of the, the reasons uh, for doing it every week is that we would have a constant reminder of the sacrifice of Christ. And one of our fears about that is that we would lose the significance of that. We want to be very intentional about how we take communion and, uh, and doing it with humble hearts and remembering the sacrifice of Christ and what he has done for us on the cross. And I pray that you would remember that this morning and reflect on that uh, when we take communion. If you're a believer this morning, I invite everybody to take communion with us um, and reflect on the message of Zephaniah, on the message of wrath that's coming, that's been satisfied by Christ. If you're a visitor with us this morning and you're uh, not a believer, I, I invite you to reflect on that message too and reflect on what God might be telling you this morning. I'm going to pray for us. Lord, thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Thank you for sending your son to die for us. Thank you for taking away our sin. Father, we are rebels against you. And you have not only atoned for that, but invited us to be your sons and daughters. You've invited us into your family. God, I pray that you would help us to reflect on you this morning throughout our day that you would help us to see your grace and your mercy. To see that your wrath is taken away from us. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.